whoever controls that which you get to call true can seize absolute power and can do crazy things with it. Yeah. And, and that's what's at stake. We are, I hate to be alarmist or whatever, but the truth is this is, they have pulled the trigger on the revolution. This is the moment. Yeah. And either we stop it or- Or we regret it, right? You're about to make the jump from the echo chamber into free and independent thought on the subjects of culture, causes, politics, and faith. Welcome to Anything with Reed Huberman. I am honored today to have in the house James Lindsay, Dr. James Lindsay. Um, and though most people who are tuning in will probably know you, let me give you a brief introduction just in case there's some that don't. But Dr. James Lindy, Lindsay is a mathematician. He's a cultural critic and an author. He's the president and founder of New Discourses. And he, with Helen Pluckrose, wrote the book Cynical Theories and recently released a new book called Race Marxism that is presently number 14 in Amazon. So he's been all over the place, including Joe Rogan's podcast, and now has arrived at the pinnacle of his career, now that he's on the Indie Thinker podcast. Uh, and I'm really excited to have you on to talk about how there are ideas and ideologies that are seeking to fundamentally change, if not destroy, Western civilization. So thanks so much for being on, James. I'm glad to be here. And you're right. We'll see how, how dark you want this interview to go. Uh, the stakes are high at the moment, though. That's correct. No doubt. Well, we'll be as honest as we possibly can. Um, so I, I think it's interesting to, to have you on because I think we were talking a little bit before um, we went live, just that a lot of people are reactionaries, and especially a lot of people in my audience who are faith-based Christians in the audience, that I think they suffer from something called, uh, it's what my friend who's a pro-life apologist, a guy named Mark Newman, calls vacant lot mm -hmm. um, syndrome. And ultimately, vacant lot syndrome is that the church um, is, is kind of absent-mindedly going along and isn't worried about, the let's just say, the Kool-Aid drinking cult until the Kool-Aid drinking cult moves into the vacant lot next door. And at that point in time, they finally say, oh, maybe we should pay attention to this Kool-Aid drinking cult street and start dating their girls. And then they finally start paying attention to what's really going on. So I just, I think generally speaking, and, and, and maybe you've seen the same thing, generally speaking, the, the big question is, what's the big deal? Um, a lot, or maybe people just see all these things and they don't know what to make of it. They see things like the cancellation of free speech on college campuses. They see cancel culture. They see diversity, equity, and inclusion in not only corporations, but now slowly but surely trickling over into our military. And they see all of these things happening, critical race theory being taught in schools, and, and, and people don't know necessarily what to make of all those things. So I want to... I want to talk to you about that and hopefully, even at the end of everything, try to provide a remedy or at least some marching orders for what we can do to, if we find that these things are the threats that we're describing today, what we can do about them. Uh, but before we do that, I have a quick suggestion for you. Halloween costume, this year, Zelensky. Now, I almost, <laughs> almost hesitate to say that, except for the fact that apparently women really love this dude, but there's a slight, slight resemblance. Have you I ever heard anybody say that? I said it. I yeah. said it the other day. I was like, I saw this guy, and he was when he did his little t-shirt thing, and I was like, I look like that guy. Yeah. What the heck? Yeah. Yeah. Just a slight resemblance, but maybe you I'm not just doing like the high heel prosthetic thing. nose. What is it? I'm not doing the high heel thing, though. The high heel thing? Oh, yeah. He, he used to have this. a music video. He's an actor. He had this music video, and he came out, and he's dancing around in the high heels, platform heels, spikes, whole thing. Not no. Okay. No, thank you. There's no doubt that that draw guy the has line. probably a rich history, um, <laughs> because uh, because he was a comedian too. I think. Yeah, a comedian too. 
Um, did you hear Sean Penn is uh, hanging out with him lately? I did not hear that. So he's uh, he's holding his Oscars hostage now, and he says if uh, Zelensky doesn't get on the uh, Oscars in some way, maybe I guess via Zoom or something, uh, that uh, that he's going to burn all of his Oscars. So um, okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so so I, uh, be be warned, Oscars. So needless to say, all right. So let's jump into kind of just talking about the what here. So I want to do this via. Um, the hoax papers for those okay. especially who may not be aware of that. And then, um, kind of just talk about what it is that you recognize that caused you to do the hoax papers, because I think some people don't even appreciate what maybe you put on the line in terms of your professional career to say, all right, we're going to do this. Um, but, but I think kind of like a good way to explain this is that like, I was watching a key and peel episode the other day and uh-huh. I think those guys are really hilarious and they were in a bar. The only two black guys in the bar were surrounded by white people and all these white people kept coming up to them while they were trying to talk to each other. And so you got one guy that purposely poured beer on his, uh, tribe called quest t-shirt. And then he was like, Oh gosh, I can't believe I poured this on there. I was trying to show it to, to them just to show how, uh, in with the culture he was. And then another guy, white guy with dreads comes up to him and says, um, Oh, I just got done watching Amistad, man. I'm going to watch that as many times as it takes until I can really express how sorry I am for what happened to you guys. And, and the key response to him and he's like, it's, it's probably okay. Cause you weren't there. And I was thinking about like our present time and where we're at, because it's almost like, um, with the, with like the Robin DeAngelo's of the world and stuff like that. And then we talk about reparations, the work is never done. And, um, now categorizing kids in school as oppressors and oppressed, uh, via critical race theory or whatnot. And, um, all of this conversation about race, it's almost weird that this key and peel episode is probably like mid 2010s. And then here we are in 2020 and it almost seems like the exact opposite of where we are right now. So what is it that kind of brought us into this place right now? Or what is it that brought you to the place where you felt like it was necessary to write those papers and kind of critique what was going on? Yeah, it's easier for me to talk. I mean, I can talk about both, but I can talk about my own journey a little bit with more authority um, because I certainly know what I was up to. Uh, We were involved in a variety of, you know, social movements and we were active online as, as, you know, the cartoon shows, you know, we were in arguments online. Somebody was wrong on the Internet. And it turned out that all these people around us were getting called um, systemically sexist, sexist Mm -hmm. in particular. So this was kind of during that third wave intersectional feminism thing that was rising up around 2013, 14, 15. And so we started looking into this. What does this mean? And what is systemic sexism? Why don't they say, oh, you're involved in systemic sexism instead of just saying you're a sexist? And so we're digging into it and we discover the gender studies literature and we kind of get this sense like it's like the dead body poisoning the whole well. Mm-hmm. Like the whole well is bad. Because and were you familiar with gender studies prior to that? No, not at all. Okay. And so, you know, we're looking at this. It reads like gobbledygook. And um, this paper comes out, a real paper that some actual scholars at the University of Oregon on a huge National Science Foundation grant wrote saying that glaciology, the scientific yeah. study of glaciers, had to be feminist. Yeah. 
and it's, I read this paper and I thought it was the most preposterous thing I'd ever read in my life. I mean, if I, we could spend the rest of this time talking about what's in that paper and it yeah. would just increasingly get absurd. And then you could go look it up and find out that I didn't make any of it up. It's just an unbelievable paper. And so this journalist writes this article and says, I still hold out among other things about it. He says, I still hold out that this paper is an academic hoax. And so it turns out a friend of mine that I was working with by the name of Peter Bergoshin, he and I got talking about this paper and that article. We sent it, one of us sent it to the other and we were laughing about it on the phone one night. And we'd had a kind of series of other events where we'd sort of, and I I, I say this perfectly aware of where I am and who I'm speaking with, that this thing operates very much like a weird religion. And we decided that the gender studies literature was working like it's scripture. And then we see this guy say, "You hope maybe this is a hoax. And then one of the things that people had tried to do in the past to discredit theologians was hoax theologians to write some you know nonsense theological treatise about this ask. But at any rate, the, the thought was the way that you, if this is a religion, you can't argue these people out of it. Yeah. You have to discredit their scripture. And... So it will, the, the religion will stand or fall by the veracity of the scripture. Source material, yeah. Right. And so we thought, well, the guy said maybe that's a hoax. Why don't we just do a hoax? And so we wrote a fake paper. It got into a very badly ranked journal. Um, it was called, I mean, plug your ears, young people, the conceptual penis as a social construct. <laughs> Wait, this was the name of the magazine? No, that was the name of the paper. Oh, the paper, that's the, right. Okay. The, it, was, it was called Cogent Social Sciences, ended up taking it. And that was such a bad journal, and in fact, probably a predatory journal that allows you to pay to get papers published that are too bad to actually publish. It, we, were, we were told we didn't solve the problem. We didn't prove what we wanted to prove, that there's something wrong in the field of gender studies itself. And so these people criticized us, and they said, this is what you have to do if you wanted to convince us. So we said, okay, let's do that. And it was write a whole lot of papers, get them into high-ranked journals, you know, see what gets in and what doesn't. So we just did that. And we wrote 20 of them in the subsequent year. And so that's, that's the short answer to what led us to do the papers, is we saw this thing, gender studies as it was, we saw that its, opera, its followers were operating in kind of a weirdly zealous, almost puritanical religious context. Mm-hmm. But for like this weird upside down, like hate based sexism feminist thing. And so we decided to try to discredit the literature by doing all these fake papers. Then what led us to, or led me in particular, to take this on is literally all I do with my life now is when we were doing those fake papers, one of them was about education. And it recommended that we abuse students in the classroom to teach them about Mm. their privilege and to overcome their privilege. And we said, thinking it would be kind of hilarious, but also no way they're going to take this. We said, well, we got to do it compassionately. And the peer reviewers of this paper, and this is at a leading feminist philosophy journal, the leading feminist philosophy journal, uh, it's called Hypatia. The reviewers for this wrote back and said, we love this idea, but you can't do it with compassion because hmm. that recenters the needs of the privileged. Wow. And I remember looking at these words and it didn't strike me immediately. First I laughed and then I, it hit me what they mean. And I had some conversations with a very small number of people involved that knew what was going on. And we came very rapidly to the conclusion that this is the making is that you, you're harming people, you're advocating for harming people. And then because they have some special status of privilege, You don't take their harm into account. It doesn't count. And you can't center that harm because it would take 
the view off of the so-called oppressed. And so that's what, if you want, radicalized me, to want to study this, to learn it, so that we can understand it and, and fight back and cure it. So what what was underneath the 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 cry to harm? Because that sounds like incredibly ideological, right? Like they're they're really hell bent on doing something, and they have an agenda and a playbook by which to to do those things. It seems. Um, so so I guess what what I'm asking is what 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 did you find was behind like gender studies or behind this idea that you cannot speak sympathetically or compassionately about something, you have to attack that. When you started to dig into that a little bit further, what did you uncover? Yeah, I can tell you in a word. It's Marxism. Yeah. It is Marxism that's being recreated, not for the working class now, but for different identity politics, uh, so-called oppressed groups or protected classes. So critical race theory is race Marxism, which is why I wrote a book titled Race Marxism, The Truth About Critical Race Theory and Praxis. And then this gender studies is access to whatever, you have some kind of power dynamic, race and racism, sex and sexism, you know, misogyny, heteronormativity, whatever it happens to be, you have some power dynamic that they say exists in the world that's structurally created what that means is it comes from the relationship. This is Marx's theory. Marx said that, the, that, that there is the bourgeoisie capitalist and that there is the working class proletariat and that they are in class antagonism and their antagonism generates a structure of society. Mm-hmm. And everybody's positioned within that structure as either basically oppressor or oppressed and they're intrinsically in conflict with one another and the oppressed are to be awakened and some of the oppressors are to be awakened so that they'll help facilitate so that there'll be a revolution and then the proletariat will take over and run a dictatorship until you get to communism that's marxism in a nutshell well you have this exact same dynamic privilege means you have access to that upper crust whatever it is so for marx being privileged would mean you have access to capital or aristocratic private property like you own an estate or something like that from the earlier stage of the world or you own the factory or the machine so you have you're privileged because you have access to a special kind of property called capital in critical race theory you're privileged because you have access to a special kind of property called whiteness Mm -hmm. and lest you think i make it up by saying whiteness is a special kind of property a key paper in critical race theory from 1993 by cheryl harris a critical race theorist from kind of the founding generation is titled whiteness as property yeah and in that paper she says that whiteness is the kind of bourgeois property that Karl Marx said needs to be abolished in the communist manifesto and so whiteness is the prop the special property you if you have access to that you have white privilege and you create an ideology called white supremacy that justifies why you get it and nobody else gets it and you end up with a class antagonism that creates a structure of racism throughout society you literally reproduce Marxism with race in place of class and then within gender studies, it's the same thing. Do you have a, well, you can get with feminism on that aspect of it, it's male and female. But when you get to the gender stuff, is it, are you cisgender? Are you transgender? Are you binary, non-binary, whatever? Or in other words, broadly speaking, are you normative or are you abnormal? And that creates, if you have access to normalcy, you are now in access to a special yeah. kind of property and you have privilege and dot, 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 the whole thing. And you name it. It doesn't matter which dimension of the weird stuff you're seeing in the world right now. It's the same thing. And I have a question for you about that. So what is it? Because I, I know both of us can trace this thing back and go pretty far. 
But for the sake of time, what is it about 2020, or is it just an optical illusion? But it sure seems that there was this transition, like I illustrated with the Key and Peele thing, and then post-2020, you got a pandemic, you've got George Floyd, you got all these things happening. What is it about, Was it almost just seems like a light switch was flipped on, because three years ago, nobody knew what critical race theory was, right? <laughs> I didn't. Well, <laughs> except for you, right? And then people in the academy, right? I knew, I didn't know it by name, but I knew it by dent of ideology. Like sure, I, sure. Could, I, I could identify what I was hearing, but I didn't know critical race theory. I didn't know Marxism as deeply as I do now. So three years ago, by and large, people didn't know about this stuff. And then 2020 happens and then boom, all this stuff begins to start to unfold at rapid pace, yeah. even though these things have been around forever. And, and I spent a lot of time thinking about what is it about 2020 that made those things happen. So I've got an expert in the room. So what do you what do you think? A number of things, but basically the short answer is that the revolution went to its kinetic phase. Mm. The revolution began. The Cultural Revolution in America began, just like the Cultural Revolution in China was bubbling up and took off in 1966. Uh, it had a definite year where they, in a sense, pulled the trigger. As Mao said, power flows out of the barrel of a gun. And so yeah. the power, George Floyd became the flashpoint. So basically there are a couple of analogies we can use, but you could say, for example, that there's lots of dry tinder that had been spread all around the country by slowly infusing this ideology into things and using different cultural flashpoints to lay lots more down. And when George Floyd died under Derek Chauvin, bam, what had happened in that instant was the match was dropped, the fire went off and the revolution began kinetic. Another way you can say it is we've all heard of the analogy now, you know, that the frog in the pot and yeah. the coming slowly being heated to come to a boil. 2020 is when the first bubble came up. Mm -hmm. The water's getting hotter and hotter and hotter. You know, if you actually boil water in like a saucepan, it gets those little bubbles all over, right. but nothing happens. It kind of vibrates a little bit, these little bubbles. And then there's finally the big bubbles and they come on very quickly when you hit, you know, 212 Fahrenheit. Um, so in 2000, 13, 14, and 15, the little bubbles were forming around the surface. But that water has been being heated up, depending on how you want to count it, either since like 1920 yeah. or more, very much more specifically in the current context since 1968. Yeah. Um, the the neo-Marxists from the, the radicals of the 60s formed a thing called the New Left that burned itself out with its revolutionary bid and then went into the universities to start indoctrinating college students to start filling in all the institutions. And that came to fruition about three generations later, and that's 60 years ago or thereabouts. And so that's where we are now. And so a number of things happened at once. We've had a number of cultural flashpoints where this has been filling the culture, that's the water heating up or the tinder being spread. Donald Trump... Mm -hmm. running for president and getting elected. The Black Lives Matter movement in 2014 and 15 after Ferguson, Missouri, and Michael Brown, most of us have kind of halfway forgotten how riotous that was for nine months. Um, even and and the, by the way, also forgotten that the uh, Obama Justice Department totally cleared that shooting as that's a right. legitimate that's shooting. Right. That's right. And the, Or we could even go back, speaking of Obama, to the Obama... When he was elected, you know, first black president, and there was some racism in the media, of course, made this huge narrative sure. like, wow, look how secretly racist America is. Well, that's the critical race theory narrative. Mm. Then the Black Lives Matter, look how secretly racist the police are. And then Donald Trump, only racists could vote for this racist orange guy. So again, the secret racism narrative had been being spread throughout. And so between Donald Trump, that's where they really, you know, turned the gas up and got the water going. Yeah. Let me ask you this, how much does the pandemic play a role in this too? Because I started studying this and um, I think all of that's great um, and, and really kind of narrows us down in focus to 
kind of what's going on in the world. But, um, but I started, I went back to history and I started looking at communism and I looked at what especially Lenin did uh, to issue forth the communist revolution in his country. And what, what I noticed was that he looked for every single flashpoint he could possibly find. He looked at World War I and then he tried to encourage soldiers now that they have arms, now that they've got guns, to revolt against their generals, to shoot them and then to come back and to create a revolution, communist revolution in, in Russia. Um, and then he looked at every little flashpoint that he possibly could to try to create um, to try to create revolution and it, and it gave this kind of saying in my head that totalitarians love crisis the crisis is always an opportunity for those who have bad motives yeah um, and and so the same thing happened with Stalin every single crisis he like with the Holodomor he blamed um, the landowners for um, oppression just because he wanted to steal their land and, yeah, and of course asked for uh, the peasants to rise up against their landowners so they were always looking for crisis to like Hillary Clinton and Rahm Emanuel saying things like crisis is a great opportunity and then yeah. most recently our president saying hey we're creating a new world order yeah. among all things and yeah. so I'm just wondering about like maybe the pandemic but also crisis as a yeah. as a turning point for these kind of cultural things well the pandemic specifically you look for example at Klaus Schwab from the world Economic Forum, which maybe you'd think, well, he's not really related to COVID-19. Yes, he is. In 2000, I'm not making some grand claim about that whether he created some virus and put it out in the world. What I'm saying is that in June, June of 2020, just a couple of months into the, uh, this novel pandemic, he releases a book called COVID-19, The Great Reset, mm -hmm. in which he explains that the crisis of COVID-19 is a narrow window of opportunity to reset the world order, to reset global capitalism, to reset all of our systems. And so this seizing upon opportunity has occurred through COVID. So you bring that up. There was definitely the seizing of opportunity. You bring up Lenin, and so you have to talk about the dekulakification of Russia. Kulaks were rich farmers, or, uh, well, they were specifically rich farmers, but there were also small business owners. Anybody who could be financially independent could hold a community together. Those people had to be taken out of power or his revolution wasn't going to work. They had to be deposed of their land, have their property stolen, sent to gulag to be re-educated, killed, something like this. And so we're seeing this unfold. If you don't know that, we're seeing this unfold in the United States and have been since the beginning of the pandemic. What did they do? They classified businesses as essential and non-essential. Things like Amazon, Walmart, Target, et cetera, got extremely well off and everything else closed. So yep. thousands of millions of small businesses sh shuttered forever. Mi millions of small business owners no longer in business. So all of a sudden that class is gone. And now what are they talking about? Huge fertilizer price spikes, fuel price spikes, there's going to be a food shortage. Why? Because these smaller and independent non-factory sized farms, the kulaks, are being dekulakified. This is what's actually happening in the United States. So what we're watching, the, the communists don't have complicated playbooks. They have lots of strategies and stratagems, but they don't have a complicated playbook. We're watching exactly that. We're watching the crushing of demand the, uh, by raising fuel prices, inflation, etc. We're watching the uh, removal of people who are independently, not wealthy, but independently self-sufficient uh, from the economy, from the farming world. And we're going to end up seeing... Uh, the way that the crisis thing works is they're going to sweep in with a solution and say, well, here's the solution. We'll put everybody, say, on a universal basic income. All we have to do is, you know, trade in what remaining private property we have or sign up for a digital ID with a digital currency that where it's all going to be housed because our old fiat currencies have fallen apart and so mm. on and so forth. So we're actually watching the exact same playbook unfold. And then when you start to realize that there's a constellation of Marxisms between gender theory, 
uh, race theory, even this approach to climate, what they call climate justice, is the same thing, by the way. Special kind of property holders are the people who have the ability to pollute and not feel the costs of it. Then there are the victims of that, the people who have to deal with the brunt of pollution. They call that climate justice. Mm-hmm. It's the exact same Marxist thing applied to whether climate change is occurring veridically or not. Whatever is happening around the argument of carbon in the atmosphere and climate, they've created a Marxist theory called climate justice that's getting applied in exactly the same way. And it turns out all these things are not by accident. The same people are paying for all of them to be yeah. forwarded everywhere. So these are you had said, why these years? Why these last 10 years leading up to the 2020-2022 range? And it's because the money started being dumped into these programs very explicitly in around 2008, 9, 10, and 11. And so you get about 10 years of billionaire finance, financing and of playing with new investment metrics like environmental social governance metrics, ESG metrics that determine all investment capital. And all of a sudden you have, and this is being led by a very small number of people who call themselves stakeholders uh, in a very small, well-knit group that meets multiple times per year to plan for the future. That happened to be the same group that Hillary Clinton's involved in and the same group that um, is saying COVID-19 is a narrow window of opportunity to reset the global system. And you start saying... Justin Trudeau and others. Yeah, exactly. The World Economic Forum is behind a lot of that. There are other entities. I don't want to put all the blame on them. That are coordinating, but this is part of what's going on. So, so I, I, I hear in the back of my head people saying things like, "So Marxism, come on! Like, where, uh, where are all of these people? Where are all of these Marxists coming from?" So, l- let's talk about that for a minute, just to say, how is it feasible that all of a sudden, or it seems all of a sudden, but throughout decades, we've been seeing kind of Marxist ideology trickle through the ranks of our society to the point where America, a place where you didn't, wouldn't think that any of those ideologies are compatible, we're starting to see these things more and more and more. So you say all of these things are interconnected to eventually one foundation, one sh- all of these strands go back to, to Marxism. So what's the chief vector of transmission? I don't know if you're familiar with Gadsat or not, but uh, am, let's, yeah. let's treat this as an idea pathogen. What's the vector of transmission for Marxism that's pumping out this stuff into society writ large? The universities, no question. So like I said, the new left, which was very radical in the streets, people got shot, things got, Detroit hasn't recovered um, from the riots there in 68 and 9. And that burned itself out. There's a book called The Critical Turn in Education that says, where did all the 60s radicals go? Mm-hmm. Um, it's by Isaac Gotsman, a Marxist educator at Iowa State University. He says, where did all the ra- 60s radicals go? They didn't go to Yuppie Dome. They didn't go to the commune. They went to the classroom. And so many of the weather underground activists, if they didn't end up in prison, uh, to be pardoned by maybe Bill Clinton later, uh, they yeah. those people went into K through 12 activism. Virtually all of them became 12 K through 12. Now I heard you say something about this, that there's actually kind of like, there's a playbook here too, where they say education is the place where these things need to go. Yes, of course it's Antonio Gramsci's plan. So it got later called in the sixties by Rudy Deutschke, who had looked at what Gramsci had written in the 1920s and thirties. He looked at what Mao did in his cultural revolution. And he called it the long march through the institutions. And how do you march through the institutions in the church context, even where you get your pastors from seminaries, which are schools, where do you get your media elites? They go to communications colleges. Where do you get your lawyers? They go to law school Where do you get your doctors. They go to med school. And under that, they all go to university, et cetera, et cetera. And so what Gramsci said is that there were five, I think there are now more medicine being one. He didn't mention, for example, so there are five key pillars to 
culture. If you infiltrate those key pillars and turn them over, the whole society can be turned over. Then you can have your revolution. And he said that they are family, religion, education, media, and law. And like mm-hmm. I said, I would definitely add medicine. I would probably add entertainment as you know the key pillars of our uh, cultural uh, system. And so how do you get into every one of those? Every one of them except family is easily entered by taking over education. Because like I just said, the pathway, the feeder pipe to everything else, every other institution, the elite status at every other institution, including the government, including everything, including military brass, all of it has to go through the university system. So if you have Marxist professors getting Marxist students, generation after generation, academic generations, maybe 10 years, we're five generations deep then, then you can really start pumping out a lot of people who are either soft to, um, sympathetic to, or fully brought into the Marxist ideology without even necessarily, this is the craziest part, without even necessarily knowing that they're Marxists. Mm -hmm. They're just reproducing the logic of Marxism. Would you call them the useful idiots? They are the useful idiots. Or as the communists used to call them, besides useful idiots, they called them suckers. Mm -hmm. And this is fun. I like to bring this up. Do you know who they said the biggest suckers were? Progressive Christians. They actually made suckers (laughs) lists. That's surprising. And progressive Christians, they used to laugh at them. Like, this is Communist Party USA stuff. This is well-documented. You can go read it for yourself where documents have come out. They called them the biggest suckers of them all, progressive Christians and put them at the top of their suckers lists. And so they would have communists as atheists come and pretend to be Christians and then get positions of some authority within the church and start swaying the Christ, uh, the progressive pastor to start deconstructing. Like, let's just reinterpret what love yeah. thy neighbor means to mean give him all your stuff. That's so that's so super interesting. I, I have to ask you there real quick, too. I want to jump into the church here in just a moment, but I have to ask you, too, about kind of like the civil rights movement. Are you familiar with Manning Johnson? I am. So uh, I, I just got done reading kind of his uh, memoir book. I don't, I don't know what you would call it, but anyway, about how the Communist Party infiltrated the civil rights movement, mm-hmm. the ACLU you and stuff back in the 1930s i found that totally fascinating that what we're seeing with black lives matter now was happening all the way back in the 30s and well documented by a black man that was in in the in the middle of the civil rights movement trying to advocate for it himself a lot of people don't know that the first national chairman of the aclu i think his name was harry reed and i'm hesitate on the read but if you look it up first national chairman of the aclu you can Mm -hmm. find for check his name was a was a progressive christian reverend and he was a member of the Communist Party. And he actually stopped being the chairman of the ACLU in the 1940s when they declared that you couldn't be a communist and be a member of the ACLU's leadership board any longer. <laughs> it's so funny. And it's like, and so in some degree, that what's that infiltration into that do? Well, you start to achieve Gramsci's bid for law. How do you do that? Well, you take up all the free speech cases you can, but you primarily take up 90, 80, 70%, some, you know, large um, some large proportion of those being being communists who yeah. infiltrated something, violated some you know core tenet of, of U.S. law, and you defend them primarily, and then occasionally you defend maybe the neo Nazis and Skokie, and uh, everybody thinks, well, look, they defend everybody, but if they perf- defend seventy five to ninety percent communists, then you're you're defending communist interests in law. Same thing all the way across. And Manning Johnson's an excellent. Example because he was you know high up in the Black Communist Party of mm-hmm. the United States and he finally figured out that actually it was like 
the communist plantation. They were telling him what he was allowed to say and not allowed to yeah. say. They were, they were, he was never allowed to speak when the white communists were around. <laughs> and he was, so they were using they black were people using to implement people. their, their regime, which is what you then see again from the chief theorist, Marxist theorist of the 1960s, Herbert Marcuse. Herbert Marcuse writes in his essay on liberation in 1969, among the other works of the 1960s, he's like the working class is out. It's conservative. Now capitalism works for the working class. It delivers the goods. He said, so they're not revolutionary anymore they're conservatives we have to find that revolutionary energy somewhere else where is it it's in the ghetto populations yeah and that's what he literally said that it's in the ghetto population so if we can just somehow get the marxist theory into the black panthers we get the marxist theory into the black nationalist movement and if we can use students that we radicalize to get them to do it and it's students that we bring in under you know various scholarship programs or whatever to get them to have marxist ideology then go back out into their radical movements and turn them Marxist, then we have our new, he called it the new working class or the new proletariat that could overthrow um, American society. And so again, in the 1960s, you see this repetition of, well, we don't know how we're going to get our revolution. So let's use the, use the black people and their troubles, which we then, as you brought up Lenin, accelerate the contradictions, comrade, uh, will then multiply their troubles to agitate and radicalize them further. And then we'll turn them against their society once they've imbibed enough Marxist theory to go along with it. And so you see the exact same process. And the communists don't care who they use. Their goal is to obtain absolute power. There'll be some tokens that they throw up there or whatever here and there, and some bones to people who are particularly useful. But in the end, everybody that's not going along with the hardcore program that's being installed is going to be the exact same kind of problem. So I want to run this by you real quick, because I have this I have this thought, and I'm well aware who I'm talking to. You, you've been a you are a vocal atheist, but also, too, you're probably one of the most level-headed, reasonable atheists that I've heard in a long time, if not ever. So I think, I think I agree. The chief vector of transmission is the academy. I remember when I went to graduate school, uh, and, and I was learning, um, and I was studying theology in a very conservative school. Um, and, but yet we were having seminars on, this is going to sound so stupid to you, uh, on seminars on Marxism and theology yeah, liberation and how the two theology. integrate. And I was just like, oh my God. Yeah. And at that point in time, I wasn't very versed in, in Marxism. And I, I didn't know that they were completely antithetical to each other. But, but nonetheless, so I definitely think that's the chief vector of transmission. But I also think there's another thing playing um, in Western civilization, in America specifically right now too, that kind of is aiding and abetting, abetting the kind of, the the crisis mentality but also kind of just the proliferation of useful idiots if if i could put it that way Mm -hmm. so i think the post-christianization of the american west is creating a vacuum that is then therefore being filled by a lot of these radical ideologies um and i would just say this i think we can both agree on this that um the human heart craves meaning the the human heart desires purpose and then I'll go one step further, and you may not agree with this, and just say, um, I think you wouldn't, but I think the human heart um, desires meaning that can only come from God, that it is that we have this inner deep ache inside of each and every one of us that can only be satisfied by the divine majesty of God's presence. I think we were created for that. And because that ache is so big and can only be filled by God, we find ourselves desperate for meaning and searching for it wherever we can find it. And almost picture it 
it like this. That I know there's this doesn't actually exist, but you can. I almost picture it as like a line graph as as we become post-Christian, especially in the American West, and that kind of spikes down. You can almost see the rise of these ideologies kind of spiking in the reverse. So there's a correlative between these two things, whereas we move further away from from religion as the death of God movement kind of sweeps through the American West. The, the vacuum then, therefore, that was created um, from the place where we used to find meaning uh, from faith is then therefore being filled in with all of these ideologies that we're now seeing kind of just flood um, flood us as Americans. So I'm, I'm, I'm wondering what you, what you think about that. So that negative correlation thing you're talking about is definitely real. And a lot of the explanation that you're, you're hitting on is intuitively correct, but I think it actually under-diagnoses the problem mm-hmm. because we have to appreciate the, the suckers the progressive Christians and even conservative churches have brought in like the Southern Baptist convention in 2019, I should say, uh, passed resolution nine, hence my getting my nines mixed up, um, which brought critical race theory and intersectionality into the Southern Baptist convention specifically as an analytical tool meant to be subordinate to scripture. But since critical race theory is a form of Marxism and the whole point of a Marxist theory is to identify subordination and then turn it over. Uh, what it actually means is that they brought it into subordinate scripture. Uh, so what you actually have here is what what my friend Michael O'Fallon calls a meta systems change. The goal is for every system to speak this new religion. Mm-hmm. So Christian churches will be turned into mouthpieces for the same religion, although they'll be dressed up in a pastor's clothes or a priest's frock or a you know whatever the re- religious vestments are for whatever other religion. I'm trying to stretch out the metaphor, but synagogues. We'll use Jewish language to do social justice. Christian churches will do Christian language to do social justice. Catholic churches will do Catholic language to do social justice. And then when you get out into the secular world, the university will use physics to do social justice. It will use history to do social justice. So this is what is what he calls a meta-system change. And the religion is actually just as important a component, probably even on parallel just as important a component as the universities and the academies, because that's how you... The, the, the Marxists in general see churches as gigantic media outlets mm-hmm. by which they can very effectively propagandize a flock, a very large number of people who will be very committed to whatever they propagandize them into. And so if they can capture those media outlets and turn them into this program, then then so good for that. So I'm going to go deep theological with you, if that's okay on yeah. your show. Okay, so here's what I've recently... I've been reading Marxism like crazy for several months now trying to untangle what I believe is the theology of Marx. I think he's presented a theology, not a philosophy. Which sounds antithetical, but he actually stated something like this, right? Well, the original title for the Communist Manifesto was the Communist Confession of Faith. So, yes, absolutely. And, um, you know, if you read his writing, that was 1847 that he wrote it and published in 1848. If you read his writing in the 1840s before that, starting from when he was 19 years old to about 25 years old, it's very explicit that he was organizing a full ontology of man, etc. And so I want to go to the Gospel of John, which, of course, begins with, uh, you know, that the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and the Word became flesh, and so on, right? And so what you have, though, the Word is translated from the Greek for logos. So you kind of have these three persuasive techniques, if you will, from the Greek, logos, ethos, and uh, pathos, right? So what they boil down to is logic and reason, or order, and then you have you know, kind of ethical arguments, what's right and wrong, and then you have feelings Mm -hmm. as modes of persuasion. And so what I actually believe is that what Marxism does is it recreates that exact same model, 
but it takes out the logos and replaces it with the pathos. We're now going to talk about, so we now have a religion of the pathos. And so when you end up with a group, a, a population of people like in the West, the United States, Britain, you know, whatever, that is becoming, so they were finding their meaning by trying to work out and attach to a religion that talks about God as the logos and God as the ultimate source of divine meaning, and then it's getting replaced with this religion of the pathos that's very seductive because emotions are very, like, yeah. don't you care? They're very alluring. So when you say pathos, you mean like emotivism, like if it feel, it, kind of if it feels good, that's what we're supposed to be after. Yeah, rather than what is true is what is, the, what is my phenomenological interpretation of my lived experience? How yeah. did it feel to live through this? And how can I, how can I in a very Rousseauian way, how mm. can I sincerely express that to you? And that being consistent, a better mode of truth. Is this where victimology comes from? Yes, absolutely. I'm, almost, I'm kind of putting those two together. Absolutely. Yeah. And so the Christian tradition puts, you know, meaning in trying to serve the embodiment of logos, and Marxism has the idea of pathos. Now, when you have the idea at the deepest level, or simplest level, I should say, what is the, the meaning of a religion like Christianity is to serve God. And then the rest of it's figuring out what that means, right? That's yeah. what you study scripture for. That's what you, the whole th theologies are for is to figure out what does it mean to serve God? But the purpose, the telos is clear. It's to serve God. Well, Marx's religion says there is no God. In fact, man creates man. And man creates man by creating a society so that he lives in. And then the society defines social relations. Those social relations socialize and shape man. And so the purpose of man is to create a society that's becoming increasingly humanized, as he put it. A humanized society. A, uh, humanism is what he called this philosophy. Mm -hmm. And so the goal is to increasingly humanize man by changing society so that it changes man on a path that he said becomes increasingly socialist. And man becomes socialist man at the end of this process. And society becomes socialist society. And in fact, they say this in their own language, that they're rebuilding the garden that we've been ejected from. Yeah. Herbert Marcuse, in his 1955 book, Eros and Civilization, says specifically that it's our birthright to be in the garden. And that we were ejected from the garden wrongfully. And the way that we get back into the garden is to take a second bite from the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Wow. And so that... By the way, it's Gnosticism. It is a Gnostic cult, but it's based off of a god of pathos that's supposed to give you the... That's where you get the actual Gnostic knowledge is through pathos. So you don't think it's a stretch to consider Marxism as a cult? It's a total cult. It's a yeah. Gnostic cult. Absolutely. And it uses magic spells like alchemy to, to achieve what it's doing. It's a totally a cult. And it's an inversion of the Bible and of the gospel both. Yeah. You have Marx literally acting as the serpent if it's Gnostic because he's saying that which you know you believe about the the order of the world and the, the God that has created it was all a lie. And if you actually just seize the secret knowledge, you get to be like him. And that's mm -hmm. what he wants to keep you away from. That's the lie in Genesis. And then what you have is, like I already explained, you have an inversion of of uh, the Gospel of John, where you now are replacing the Logos with the Pathos so and recre recreating a whole new religion. Well, so, so this is why I think that a post-Christian nation is a prime candidate for yes, what we're seeing. because you're not serving, you're, you are no longer reaching most people and connecting with them with the idea of serving a sovereign, eternal, 
uh, totally transcendent God that's not part of the universe. You're now telling them meaning exists in creating society the way that we can imagine and reimagine it. And we can imagine a perfect social society. And your meaning is found by taking part in the process of becoming a society that makes the right kind of people, that makes the right kind of society, that makes the right kind of people, until we get ourselves back to society mm. becoming a humanized garden yeah. out of the jungle. And so the meaning becomes in the tap into your pathos, which is very seductive, and then recreate the world in your own image, holding yourself up. In fact, in, in the same essay, which is Marx's critique of Hegel's philosophy of the right, in the introduction, in the exact same, like, on the exact same page, depending on how the pages are written, um, where he famously says that religion is the sigh of an oppressed people, it is the opium of the yeah, masses, yeah, right? Is. Everybody's heard that. It's, it's something, it's a palliative that people give themselves so that they won't... Uh, seize upon their suffering, their yep. pathos, and then turn it into Revolt. revolutionary action. He says, like three paragraphs down or two paragraphs down from that, that that religion is the false sun that man puts in orbit around himself until he realizes that he is his own true sun at the center of his own being. Man made into God. Man making himself into God through this process. So there's a, if you are... Which you may know by now, which is exactly what we believe Satan says of himself in the Old Testament. Yes, absolutely. So I say the serpent. And so this is exactly what we're seeing here. And what you find is that's a very meaning-laden project. And so people who have lost the idea that the man, to paraphrase from, from Viktor Frankl, that man's search for meaning has something to do with figuring out what this transcendent, deep, perfect deity is that we're now supposed to serve. It is now, wait, no, I seize the reins of understanding the social conditions of the time, and I know what the possible trajectory is, I imagine a perfect future, and I commit myself to the class role of working to create that. That's a very meaning-laden project. It's also a very now project, whereas serving God, when you're having your moments of despair, feels very abstract. He feels very remote. People cry out, God, God, where are you? You know, you read the, the, the story of the New Testament is basically the Israelites screwing up over and over again, yeah. and then somebody finally crying out, God, where are you? And God's like, look, do this thing, and we'll get you back on the prophet. And that's a prophet, and then everything kind of comes back on, and then they screw up again, and they get it wrong again, and right again, wrong again. Do you, do you feel comfortable being called a prophet? I think that I've heard stranger uh, <laughs> because you're actually serving in that role i want to say something i know real. i think about the irony of that a little bit yeah sometimes <laughs> I, I want to say something real quick um going back to pathos for just a moment um because uh we're seeing if you want to call it this and this sounds pejorative and it's not meant to but the useful idiots of the uh evangelical pastor or the conservative pastor um that is doing the yeoman's work of the progressive christian uh, comes in the way of pathos because they've been convinced that you're a good person or that you're sympathetic and you're empathetic, all things that are very important to Christians, if you echo these talking points that are clearly leftist. Like if you echo Black Lives Matter, that's how you show not only your woke credentials, but that's how you show you truly are a benevolent person. So this is what we're falling for in the Christian church so very often. So I want to I give you a couple quotes, and this may be a little bit leading, but I want your honest opinion as you hear them. And these from, are from prominent uh, evangelical white pastors. Mm -hmm. And so this is from one of them. He says, as a white pastor, so already we got identity in there, identity politics. I want to lay aside more of my preferences. I don't want to speak on issues popular to white followers and stay silent on issues not popular to non-white followers. As a white pastor, I have blind spots. spots. I am part of the problem. And then two more. Um, Pathos. 
the Bible gives this refrain over and over and over again. Let the nations be glad. Let the nations be glad. Let the nations be glad. This is not about a group of white folks in English. Now, the problem I have with this is that every Christian knows that. Every Christian knows this is not speaking to white English people. And so it leaves us saying, why are you even saying that? Why are you even bringing that up since no white people actually think God's like, by the way, this is only for you whiteies. Uh, no, no white evangelical believes that. Um, and then the same pastor went on to say this in the documentary that you were in. If we find, uh, and by the way, that is um, by what standard fantastic. Um, if we find an Anglo eight, speaking of like uh, leadership scores, I forget what the scale is, but needless to say, if we do a leadership score for people we want to hire, if we find an Anglo eight and an African-American seven, which one do we want? We want the African-American seven. Mm. When you hear some of that stuff infiltrating the evangelical church, what does it make you think? I mean, since I'm talking in a Christian context right now, I'm like, I'm, I'm all up in the gospel. I hate to put it. That, I know it's weird. You, you build me as an atheist, um, but I am. I'm all up in the gospel. So one of the first things I think when they're making these declarations, the so-called positionality must be intentionally engaged, which is your social position in the structural hierarchy created by the Marxist understanding of, of the structure of society. I, as a white guy, blah, 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 blah. Well, what I think is, you know, to the hypocrites who pray in public, you know, you've got your reward. There it is. Yeah. You've got your reward. And so for everybody who actually cares and wants to enter the kingdom, you should go go to your room and pray in private and into prayers should go, our Father who art in heaven, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that. Another thing that I think is I think of the story with Jesus on the mountain with Satan's arm around his shoulder saying everything you can see will be yours mm-hmm. if you just go along with what I'm offering yeah. you. And so we're going to go along with the, with the program of the world that's being offered here. We're going to have this whole new world order. And, you know, if you participate, you're going to be thought well of in it. And if you don't participate, well, too bad. But these pastors are saying, deal. But that's not what Jesus did. He rebuked Satan and said, you know, that he has something better and get out. Yeah. Like you don't even you know what you're talking about. So I think well, of these man kinds does not of not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So you're That's following right. a different logos. Well, you're following a pathos is what you're following. You're, you're tapping it, but you're also following the idea. The pathos is the madness of crowds as Douglas Murray named it. Mm-hmm. You're following, uh, what seems like is the right thing to do is, is you know, according to some, temporary standard of society, in fact, a manufactured standard of society. You read Herbert Marcuse and he says, we're going to create a new sensibility and a new morality. And we're going to interject these new values into people until they need them, until they become vital needs by changing man at the very biological level, the level of his basic needs so that he can't live without socialism. That's the essay on liberation. Mm-hmm. And so what you're doing is they're playing along with that program. And whether somebody's come and put their arm around the shoulder and offered them a you know, everything you can see will be yours in the new world. I don't know, but this is a Faustian bargain that they've made. And they have been sucked in through their pathos. They're talking about you have to care, you have to feel, you have to this. Think about how these people would feel if you didn't. How would people, you know... My colleague, Helen Pluckrose, when she wrote one of her papers for her master's thesis, a lot of people don't know this, or for her master's degree, she wrote this explanation of um, Othello, Shakespeare's Othello. Mm-hmm. And so there's a relationship there between Othello and Desmodona. But it turns out her argument, which is historically grounded, is that it was not a scandal because it was a cross-racial relationship. The idea that a, that a brown person or a dark brown, or an African person and a, a European yeah. person would be, he was a Moor, that's right. And that, that it, that's relevant. That's not scandalous. 
that relationship. The scandal was that it was a Christian and a Moor, a mm. Muslim. And so it was the cross-religious. And so she wrote this, and her advisor said, yeah. you know, her professor said, well, this is historically correct, but how would an African-American in the United States feel to read this? The denial of their <laughs> yeah. racism. Feel. It's crazy. It's the pathos. And mm-hmm. so the, 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 the seduction is, is there through the pathos. Yeah. And um, that's what I see happening with these people. And the other story when I, you're reading this is like, um, that I think of again. I told you. I went. I'm in the church, so I went straight to the gospel, like as as one should. And as a good atheist. Good as job. a good atheist. I'm a, and so, um, I think about the story where you know Jesus is picking up sticks on the Sabbath, and they're like, "Don't you know the law?" And he's like, "I am the law." Yeah. And it's like these people are like, "Don't you know the new law of society?" But Jesus said, "I am the law." Yeah. Right. And so they've lost their path. They've lost their path. Mm-hmm. The enemy in the Bible is described as the deceiver, as the prince of lies. And so pathos has taken them off of their route, and they've accepted a nest of lies that feeling is more important and that the law of man in the given era is more important. And then the pharisaical, you know, attending to all the details mm-hmm. is what matters, or I guess it's pharisaical, rather than rather than, you know, keeping your eyes fixated on the Father, as Jesus said that he was doing and that you should do through him. Okay, so so I got to, because we're running out of time, I really want to get to two last things. So the, the, as quickly as possible, and I know this is kind of like an important one uh, to do quickly, but what is the chief danger of Marxism? Because, okay, so we've explained kind of where these things are coming culturally. We see kind of like the, the, demolish, the demolishing of women's sports. We see critical race theory. We see radical gender ideology in the trans movement. We see all these things going on in society. Um, we track that down to Marxism. And then still, I still think some people say, oh, Marxism, whatever, you know, we, we created a, a society that's kind of resilient against such things. You know, that's what the constitutions were, whatever they may say. Mm. But, um, but what is the chief danger of Marxism? And I'll just tell you for me, what I, what I come back to, it's kind of like postmodernism, Mark, Marxism and their similarities there. But the, the chief danger, I think, is, is relativism is it's full on assault of objective truth, almost like what you were alluding to when you were talking about the logos and the importance of, of, of truth over emotions. Um, I think relativism is the kind of thing that causes um, parents to raise small, small children with gender confusion because it gives them the woke virtues of registering on TikTok and getting likes and all those kind of things. I, I think it does no limit of really, really great harm to people if we don't understand basic biological realities like man and woman and those kind of things. Yeah. And all of that I trace back to, and that's just one example for the many things that we could talk about. I trace that back to relativism and how dangerous that is. I think that's dangerous for Christians because we are a people that believe that the truth is necessary to come to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The truth is a uh, that that is true and that you need an understanding of truth to accept the gospel. You shall know the truth and the truth will make you free. Mm. So you can't have a warped understanding of reality and have a clear pathway to the gospel. You need to know truth. Relativism is a full-on assault of that. But I think that that goes broader too, just to society at large. When we yeah. start uh, alienating objective truth as a, as a category that doesn't even exist, like the postmodernists would, 
I, I think we see the kind of unfolding of what's going on in our society and it becomes dangerous uh, for each and every one of us. So what would you say is the chief danger if we can kind of like whittle it down to one thing, to a fine point of say, this is why Marxism must be withstood? I mean, what you said is a means to an end, and the end is a complete totalitarian system that serves a very small number of people and enslaves the rest of the planet. Mm -hmm. So the truth sets us free, or you can say like Jesus is the, the way, the truth, and the life. And why is that? Because uh, the truth is ever the enemy of all tyranny. Arbitrary shifting relative power is tyranny. It's mm -hmm. where tyranny flows from. And so the point of the relativism is actually just to create shifting sand where whoever's in power can tell you what you have to believe this week and if they want to change it next week. So relativism is a means to an end that takes you away. When Jesus comes and says that, you know, the truth is, is the, I am the truth and the way, right? So those things are the same thing. What they're saying is that that's how, you, that's, and that's where freedom comes from. That's because it is the opposite of arbitrary power. It is grounded power. Yeah. Power rooted in actual truth is grounded. So what the chief risk is then is you're going to relativism is just a pathway to losing your society and having a global slave society with a very small number of people and if you don't if you want a preview of what it looks like i could say go read 1984 or something dramatic but no just look at china mm -hmm. and so then we look for example in china at the uyghur population you know some however many three million or thereabouts muslims that are uh you know what is it, I guess, Eastern Chinese, and that they have been now put into prison camps. They're literally in concentration camps. They're literally having their organs harvested for what? Having a religion outside of the Marxist faith that the CCP mandates. And so it, that could just as easily be Christianity that's not playing the progressive game. Yeah. So the conservative Christians end up having their organs harvested for whatever, you know, or what it could, it, it could easily go to that and it can go there very, very quickly. So the relativism, you are, your intuition is correct. The point with the radical subjectivity or radical relativism, it has a theological point in Marxism, but a practical point is that whoever controls that which you get to call true can seize absolute power mm -hmm. and can do crazy things with it. Yeah. And, and that's what's at stake. We are. I hate to be alarmist or whatever, but the truth is, this is they have pulled the trigger on the revolution. This is the moment, yeah. and either we stop it or, or we regret we, it. Right? And we're not entering into 1917 industrial communism like you saw in in Russia, where you, the idea could be if you could actually gather enough people together and like you know burn down their 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 commissary or whatever that you maybe could get out of it. No, we're dealing with super high tech, algorithm driven, high surveillance. Uh, biometric, blah blah blah. You know they have the AI and the the um, the robotic and automation technology now to actually make a real bid for actual global communism. That's what they said and said in all these fifties and sixties writings that the Soviets couldn't do it because they just didn't have the technology. They have technology now where they could throw down an iron curtain that's completely. It's really a silicon curtain. It's a completely digital curtain. Where, how are you going to rise up if they're tracking literally everything you do, who you're associating with, who you're talking to, everything you've said? And how are you possibly going to come together and fight against it? In China, it's illegal to get 50 people together for any reason without a government official there. Yeah. Uh, you can't gather. You can't do it. How are you going to have church? Uh, it's going to have to be CCP church or whatever. And so I don't think people realize that we are at this cusp. And if it's, let's say it's not that bad. Let's say it's way softer than that. 
then what you're going to lose is just your faith. Yeah. It's going to be replaced with fake social justice faith. You're not going to be serving God. You're going to be serving all this nonsense instead. And if you don't, you're racist, you're sexist or whatever, and you're going to be persecuted. And, and maybe the soft version of this is a gigantic persecution. Yeah. And the hard version is look at China, put it on the worst steroids you can imagine because there's nowhere to flee to left if it's everywhere. And so there's nothing to have them to stop turning up the volume on the level of surveillance and control. And that's what you're headed toward. Okay, so let's say that we recognize the threat and we're ready to do something about it. Uh, you have said, I heard you just recently say, uh, critical race theory is as critical race theory does. And you're uh, really, you've keenly pointed out that critical race theory is not critical race theory without praxis, according to critical race theorists, that there has to be active measures by which you implement the theory. Um, and so I'll give the I'll give leftists credit, and I'll give Marxists uh, neo-Marxist credit that they uh, they are way more strategic than I think we give them credit for. Yes. Um, so I believe if we're going to recognize the threat, it's it's not good that we just recognize the threat and say "woe is me" or uh, "the sky is falling," but that we actually then have a step. So could you just give like a couple of suggestions as to if we recognize what's going on in the culture and our need to do something about it, then then what should we do about it? Yeah, so everybody's got to do something. And let me just put a to the previous question, let me add one fine point where people say, well, the Constitution, it couldn't happen here, right? Mm-hmm. Let me show you how easy it is. You know, those land acknowledgments you keep hearing about at different universities and they're, they're standard in Canada and Australia and some other countries. We are, occupy formerly Cherokee land that we stole from the blah, blah, blah. The Fourth Amendment of the Constitution protects against illegal search and seizure of property. But if you, it doesn't protect against the search and seizure of stolen property. So if you can convince people to admit over and over and over again that the land that they are occupying is stolen or that the fruits of that they built their, their livelihoods out of is stolen from uh, being built on the backs of slaves, then you can seize property without changing a word of the Fourth Amendment. And it's going to work that way across the board. Mm. And technology, of course, is getting workarounds to the First Amendment. Smart guns, but it can be disabled from a distance so that nobody but their owner can fire them, but they're actually uh, trackable, traceable, and can be disabled from a distance. We'll get around the Second Amendment. It's not hard to get around the Constitution using A, technology, and B, slippery language, which they're going to be very good at. So it can happen here. Now, what do you need to do? The first thing is, since I'm speaking to Christians yet again, is discernment. You have to it's you have to get good at identifying these deceptions and these lies. Yeah. They're teaching critical race theory. They say no, we're not. It's critically responsive teaching or culturally responsive education or whatever. You have to be able to call that out immediately. You have to be able to see the thing for its substance, not for its surface. Mm-hmm. And so you have to get that. And then you have to churches are perfect because you also have to start organizing. You have to start organizing with one another, get together, communicate, share information, get informed. Because if you go out there and just take this on blindly, you're gonna screw up. You're going to fall into a trap. There's landmines in this battlefield everywhere. So you want to get discerning, getting together and talking with other people and uh, sharing resources to understand it better, help with that. Take all of my resources. Go find other people's. If you don't like me, I don't care. Uh, You have to know what's going on. Go read primary sources. You have to learn what this is. You have to understand how it works. And then you have to start getting organized. So yes. So start to organize, start to, start to gather Churches are great for that. You're already gathering. Educate, get informed, get organized, then start taking action. And the I hate to put it to, to such a fine point. There's only really one action that matters. Everybody has to look to their gifts of the Spirit, as they say, for themselves. People ask me, James, what can I do? And I say, I don't know. What can you do? 
And you have to answer that question for yourself. I'm not being cute. I don't know what you can do, but you got to do it. But there's one objective. The people who are implementing this must be removed from positions of power that they're abusing. There is no other way. They're zealots. You'll notice over the past however many years, how many times has reason slowed them down or stopped them? Zero. They never stop. You can't even get them to stop putting a pornographic book in a single school library. They freak out. They're utterly committed to their cause they are utterly abusing their power they you resort tr- to talking points like let them read and we're like we're not talking about pornography though are we yeah so this is what i'm saying they will somebody told me last summer it was a pivotal moment in my life they said you can't always appeal to somebody's better nature because they might not have one mm. and these people are as you said very strategic they're very agenda driven they have goals they have aspirations and the pe- you have to be discerning again who are the people who are carrying water, going along, useful idiots? And what do you do with them? Do you educate them? Do you separate them? What is it? We shut all this down till we find out what's going on, and then you can put them back, uh, clear them up, get them, get them on the right track. And then there are the people who are the activists who are implementing it. And those people have there's there's no other option, and I cannot say that more firmly. No other option. They any. Uh, levers of power they have their hands on, they must have their hands removed from those levers of power. By And this is a trap also. This is a landmine. So it cannot be done with violence. It cannot be done yeah. by force. It must be done through peaceful, I refuse to go along with you, almost laughing, joyful warrior, um, kind of civil rights, sit-ins, arms crossed, and we're not leaving sort of thing. I'm, we're not going to go along with it. We're not going to let you keep abusing your power. We're going to use lawsuits. We're going to use elections. We're going to use, um, you know, recall demands, whatever the legal ma- mechanisms are. And we're not going to be triggered into going into anything else because the second we violence triggers or as people are, or, you know, is another civil war coming, I can guarantee you that there will be like UN forces filling up Canada and CCP forces filling up Canada to secure your, our uh, nuclear arsenal. Mm-hmm. If anything looking too unstable happens in the U S it can't go that direction. Whoever pulls the trigger first, in other words, with violence loses this game. Yeah. So it's a massive standoff off in that regard so every legal means to take them out of power everybody who can run for office should everybody who can do a bake sale to raise money for that person to run for office should whatever your gifts of the spirit happen to be to support that vet candidates vet uh, you know people who have spines encourage them to stand up we need a ron DeSantis in 30 states 50 states if we could get it and support financially podcast like this one okay so i do have one last question but i do want to say something you said you said make them state a bridge too far i think that's great advice especially with the useful idiot so make them say oh well i just i'm against racism okay but how far does that bridge go or when is it when is the racial rhetoric too far like when we start being racist against white people yeah when we start kind of taking anti-racism and saying you know present racism is the only cure for past racism when we do that abram x kendi nonsense um uh, make them state that that isn't that a bridge too far and and hold them to that that's actually incredibly powerful because that's where you start to weaponize the social cohesion factor back the other way and it's i called it the woke breaking point. Ask people, when, okay, maybe you don't think this is too far or too crazy yet. When would be? When is it? What's yeah. the line? Draw some lines for me. Let's just draw some lines. We're not going to do anything with them today. Let's just draw some lines. If they're tearing down a statue of Thomas Jefferson, is that too far? Do they have to tear down the White House? Where's too far? What would make you say, wait a minute, that's, that's too much? And everybody should be helping people find those points. And then they should also create you know, a golden bridge or whatever they call it, you know, when you hit that point, 
come talk to me. Yeah, I got on. some materials to help you understand what's happening in the world. That's great. Okay, so one last question. Um, we've talked way more about Jesus and the Bible than I thought we would in this conversation. So I am just curious. You've been doing work with Michael O'Fallon. You were in that documentary, uh, By What Standard, which is about kind of wokeism in the Southern Baptist Convention. Yeah. And you've been working a lot with with Christians lately. Um, and I'm starting to see this strange allegiance with people like Bill Maher, who are saying things that Christians are like, Yes, finally. Um, and then uh, people like Jordan Peterson, who's very actively, uh, uh, well, an agnostic, but very actively like talking to fellow Christians and, and talks about Jesus with tears in his eyes. Um, so you, I know you said in that documentary that you're no longer an old guard atheist, but I am curious how um, your interactivity with Christians, and, and by the way, you're even speaking at my church tonight, which is the occasion for us talking. Um, I'm just curious how your views on Christianity have evolved um, since you've kind of gone down this this road that's led you to kind of being such an active figure in the culture, speaking against wokeism. Yeah, I'm pretty warm to it, to be honest with you. I, I really have had a well, I, 90% warm, very well, welcoming reception from Christians. I occasionally have these Christians that are like, yeah, but how can you know anything? And I'm like, come on, man. I don't want to have that conversation. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I found that we have far, we have more in common philosophically even than anybody really expects. But so many of the members of the of the, the Christian faith communities have been actually great testaments to their faith, which I think is the most important thing. You know, uh, they welcome me to their homes. We have dinners. We have conversations. We don't get antagonistic. We can dig into the philosophy. Like, well, what is the basis of knowledge? I don't find these conversations to be particularly interesting, especially in the present circumstances. But we can get into them if we want to, and we we we've formed friendships over you know, even through those, you know, whatever level of disagreement that we might have. And so it's been a really wonderful experience. Um, I think that Christianity offers a wonderful philosophy and structure. I'm actually, I quote from it a lot. Yeah. I relate through it a lot. I find it very useful for clarifying my own thinking, both about what I'm fighting against in terms of how it inverts it and what can be done about it in terms of, you know, what does it mean to keep your eyes you know, on objective truth and to see the truth as the way and, you know, to set the truth in the logos rather than say the ethos or the pathos or some other, uh, domain of, of human experience. You know, I get to think about these things on a deep level. What is the, what is the the story of the old Testament with the going away and coming back and the going away and coming back of Israel over and over and over again? What does that imply? What is it? I find it to be a very compelling way to think about, life. And so in in that regard. So what I end up telling Christians is philosophically speaking, because I always know where this goes next, is that I think we agree about virtually everything, except I don't have the need to name this thing at all yet. Whereas Christians, of course, have gone into not only deciding to name it as uh, God of the Bible, mm-hmm. but also, or the God of Abraham, if you will, but also to then take the step further and say that that which is testified to in the New Testament, uh, that Jesus was the embodiment, sacrificed himself for our atonement, etc. Well, let me uh, dovetail this true. in here. Are you open to spiritual experience, or maybe even have you had any? I mean, I used to a lot. Um, and in fact, I, I mean, this is going to sound really heretical or whatever here. I've practiced a martial art for getting on close to 15 years now that's Chinese and explicitly Taoist. And I mean, we don't do like Taoist magic spells or any weird stuff. It's just the philosophy underneath the art. It's a martial art. It's practical. But, you know, the idea that 
anybody who does that, you know, understands that there's meditative and contemplative aspects to understanding and the fusing of, of the mental and the physical. And thus also, you know, if you want to get, they, they're always all into the energy stuff or whatever, the chi and all of that. And, but, um, if you want to get into that aspect, I have, in fact, you know, I've meditated large numbers, numbers of hours in my life. I've, I've, I used to be religious. I, you know, was quite serious about prayer and having spiritual experiences in churches. Uh, I, the joke, I'm an atheist, of course. So I grew up Catholic and then, you know, I went to college. My college roommate was a, the son of a Presbyterian minister. And so, you know, I got involved with them and their, their stuff. So yeah, I am actually, I think it's interesting. I think it's enriching. I, however, don't know for sure what it means, and I'm very curious to figure out what it, you know, so we can talk about the physical, it's very easy, we can talk about the mental, we have a sense of what that is, it's different, what is, what is spirit, and, you know, without going into a full Hegelian phenomenology (laughs) nonsense that I think was a huge wrong turn in philosophical history, I don't know the answer to that question, but I know that there's something, and it's very interesting. Well, you hang out with me long enough, and you'll be speaking in tongues in no time. I was going <laughs> to ask you the final question, which the guys at the Babylon Bee always ask their guests. Are you ready to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? And they kind of do that so much. They do it they, every time. They I'm, asked uh, Elon Musk this the other day. I don't know if you saw I it. I did but. not see that, but um, you know, I've been on their show a couple of times, and I've told oh, okay. them consistently, no, not today, and I'll tell you, no, not today. <laughs> but thank you for asking. I know what you intend by it. Yeah, no, that's great, man. Well, thank you so much for being here. Uh, You're an absolute legend. Uh, I would call you the goat, uh, but I don't want to fill your head up uh, too much with... With too you much called self-esteem. me a prophet a little bit ago. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's probably even more. So uh, you stick around too much, and I'll compliment you a lot. So nonetheless, <laughs> thank you for being on today, man. Um, d- tell us real quick how people can stay up to date with what you're doing, where they can go buy race marks. Mar- Sorry, race Marxism. Okay, you can, it's really easy to remember where to buy race Marxism because we bought the domain. So if you go to racemarxism.com, it'll direct you straight to where you can buy it, which is on this little website nobody's ever heard of called Amazon. Yeah. Um, so you can get race Marxism there. We independently publish it, so that's the only place it's currently available. Audiobook is coming soon. I know you're going to cool. ask. I've recorded it. The audio engineer is working on it. It's coming. Cool your jets. It'll be there. Uh, keep up with me at the website is newdiscourses.com. Or on my social media, uh, which I am at Conceptual James, and the company is at New Discourses. And you can find it on virtually any of them. I'm most active on Twitter, but it's on almost all of them. Awesome. Great. Well, thank you so much for being here, man. Thanks. All right. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. Thanks, everybody, for watching. Our thanks again to our guests for being on the show today. Indie Thinker with Reed Uberman was brought to you by our sponsors. If you like what you heard today, please do us a big favor and give it a five-star review and like it and share it with friends. And if you want to hear more awesome guests, make sure to check out past episodes. Indie Thinker is a nonprofit paid for by our sponsors and the generous gifts of people like you. In order to hear more great guests like you did today, please consider giving a tax-deductible gift by going to IndieThinker.org. And just remember, your voice matters, but infinitely more when you think for yourself. 